Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. With money comes power. And sometimes people could get lucky. They're not the smartest people that get lucky and they have that money that shouldn't have power. And they say power corrupts. What you see us today as is what you've seen us before. It didn't change us. A lot of the structures, specifically in Chicago, during the time period where minorities were being suppressed. So it's, they just didn't have the, the money to wear those cool leather jackets the Panthers had. Mm-hmm. But they was trying to run yeah. their neighborhoods. At that point, the threat is just a white person seeing you coming home. You get attacked and fucked over for yeah. that, just for being there. In those early points, the guy that's willing to stand in front because he got a good debt on, like he can really throw a punch. Doesn't necessarily have any leadership skills or abilities. It's funny because okay. um, people call us nerds and stuff. I'm like, yo, that's a compliment to me. It's pretty tough to make me feel like that ain't cool now. In the beginning, nerd wasn't cool. That was like Urkel. Yeah, yeah but guess world. what? You doing things like, because you watch a lot of movies, a lot of videos, uh-huh. you're going to fail. If I did everything that they did, I'd be dead yeah. and broke. Like I tell them, I'd be dead mm-hmm. and broke. So I'm hoping that like when we're telling our story and, you know, I talk to my wife about this all the time, that people like think that we're trying to glamorize life. What we want you to know is that there's a lot of suffering, y'all. Jackson. And I'm Charlie Webster. And this is Surviving El Chapo, the twins who brought down the drug war. Can you imagine being taken on drug runs by the age of seven years old, taught the family business, and by the time you're 17, you've got $1 million in cash under your bed? And that was just from three months' work. For the Flores twins, that was just the starting point. They were out on their own. The dad, a fugitive in Mexico. The brother, in prison. I remember um, having a note left in our door at my brother's house where we were staying at. It was a note that said, Cuate, llamame. Call me. Come, twin, call me. When I did call, it was, um, it was Tommy. He was my brother's, um, connect or his source of 
for getting drugs. He tells me, look, I just pulled into the McDonald's right here on Kensington 26. And I remember just putting it in to, to meet him. You know, and he stands there and greets me. How you been? How's your brother? He tells me right away, like, listen, I'm, I'm gonna cut the bullshit. I wanted to offer you work to see if you wanted to work with me. I got kilos of cocaine and um, I wanted to know if you needed something. I was like, needed some. He's like, well, look, I want to give you some. I'm pretty sure that you and your brother can move it. I just wanted to discuss if you're interested. And I was like, well, I, I'm interested, but I, I'm not sure if I, you know, could help you really, you know? Like, I was like, well, let me call someone I know that might be interested. I call him, you know, my, you know, this trusted friend of our family he ends up becoming our very first customer. And um, we negotiate something, you know, he doesn't take me too serious. I'm still nervous, like, you know, I don't have no money to buy him. Like, no, don't worry, I'm gonna lend them to you. Just be careful, you know? He's like, look, just go home, man. I'm gonna be sending my brother, you know, to go see you. So I remember going home and him showing up. I remember, you know, telling him to go around the back. I opened the carport and he pulls in. I still remember he has a gold Camry. It's sunny out, you know. I'm like, okay. I'm waiting for him to give me a bag. He says, hold on. He gets off the front seat, jumps in the back seat. I know what he's doing, like, from my experience with my brothers. Like, there's a stash department, you know. They call it a trap. So I could see him in the back seat pulling it out. When I go get the bag, and when I pull it over my shoulder, I'm like, what the? You know, it's heavy. I don't know what's in it, but I'm thinking, okay. Going to the house, he pulls out, and I open the bag, and I see that there's like bricks and bricks in there. I'm like, eh, what did he send? And I start counting them, and there's 30 kilos. I'm like, wait a minute. So I call him. I'm like, man, I think your brother made a mistake. He sent me 30 kilos. And he laughed. He said, look, don't worry, man. You're going to do good. Don't worry about it. Just do what you got to do. Call me when you, when you have some money. That was a sh like a big moment. I remember me and my brother talking. We have the keys like, what are we going to do? We're going to sell them. Now we're going to sell them. I was excited and I was like, oh, we got this. Like, I'm already spending the money in my head. First thing we do is we cut a window open on the kilos, which is common. For some reason, I always see the kilos like this and you cut a little triangle. You know, you pull back the, so, you know, the well, layers so of- Those people who don't know, a kilo actually, depending on where it comes from, but at that time, it was more common to actually have a kilo of cocaine looks like a, a flat brick, like a more of a, a brick shape. It comes different shapes and sizes. They come with inner tubes because if they're throwing in the ocean, in the water, you know? Yeah, it's the condom. Yeah, that means we call it condom. It usually feels like it's that better quality from, from, you know, the source where it was made because they're going to take the precaution to make sure that it's it, protected. It doesn't get wet. And it has layers. So it comes layers, plastic, clear layers. It, it might be tape. A, a tape, it might be a duct tape, aluminum foil. You know, we're in Chicago. A lot of times by the time it gets there, someone already has Checked. opened it, put a cutting agent into it, reshaped it, and send it. So it doesn't need the rubber, you know, condom or the balloon. So it's a fast way to tell. And it also has a stamp inside, which will come from like the factory it was made or the 
or the what they call the laboratory. When we buy kilos, they'll be like, what stamp do you want? And you could say Rolex, a frog, a bear. I'm looking at the brick. It has a sticker on it. It has a, a dollar bill, a hundred dollar bill with a picture of a woman. And I'm peeling back the layers and we look and we see that it looks good. Like it looks, we smell it. It smells good. And did you know what it should smell yeah, like? It, it has a distinct smell. Yeah. It, yeah, so going back to my brother's days, just, you know, um, he always made sure he got the best quality. And the reason why it has to come packaged like that is because you can't buy Coke. Like no one would buy Coke from me at that time coming from a bag because that means that you could easily put cut into it. And these are made for us to actually, they're sold in the street for them to be able to either cut it or so you can make it to crack. They need the purity. And my older brother, they used to call him the Re-Rock King. What they'll do is take a good kilo, put some cut in it, make it back look like a regular kilo because they want, I guess, people who snort want to like break it or whatever the case is. So we would help in the process. So you knew what the smell like. Yeah, and yeah. just to qualify, when you mean cut, it means you mix it with something else. Cutting agent. Yeah. You use some kind of vitamin or yeah. you know, something like, you know, that's ingestible. We look at the cocaine. It has like a nice little glassy kind of like a pearly kind of look to it. Glossy. You know, we're like, okay, it's good. So I go, we, you know, like we're excited. My older brother had um, these stash compartments made in the in our home. And one of them was in my bedroom. And there was, it was a mirror, a mirror on the wall. And it would have two remote controls, one for the power and one for the, to pop it like a trunk. The reason for the power is just in case they come and the Fed had like equipment that would make surges, yes. power surges, power surges that would make things open. So we'd cut the power off. I remember cutting the power on, I could hear the motor run and then popping it and it was still working good. We throw all the kilos in there. Then calling our customer, come over. customer comes and he's like, I showed him, look. He was like, he peels back the layers himself and he's like, oh man, you got some kilos, like you really got one. He's like, holy shit, like look man, don't tell nobody you have them, you know? Let me make some calls. We seen his eyes lit up. We knew when he did that, he was like, I'm going to take advantage of this situation. And I think instantly we started kind of like saying, we're not going to depend on one person. He'll have us literally by the balls if he was our only customer. So he takes them. By the end of the night, like he came back with the money. I think it took us longer to count the money that they didn't actually sell the kilos. Because remember, you're coming and you have a pile of, you know, ones and fives and tens and twenties. And you're like, we don't have no money machine. Yeah. So how long did it take you to count? It probably took us like four hours. I think the excitement was too. It was like, I can't believe we just made, you know, whatever. How much was it? It was like maybe 20 something thousand. But it was still a lot of money for us. We were 17 years old. Just to recap, we went from not having much one day to having a million dollars worth of drugs in our hands. 17 years old to being able to sell them, make money, and now, you know, with the money we made, we're 17. That day, you know, I said it before, we were hooked. We were addicted to that life. Cars, clothes, going out. You know, they we had to pay to every going into every club. We're 17. We want to be where all the adults are. It took money for that. You easily spending a thousand dollars a day on anything, food, yeah, food, food, restaurants. We were used to eating good. We we're wasting a lot of money, and we we're like a walking billboard. 
my brother and I started saving money. We say we hustled hard, like, and we just saved, say we took the money we just needed to live on. And I remember things like, once we had that million dollars, we're like, with this, we could buy 50 kilos cash, right? Make a hundred grand four times a month. Like, if we can't live, even if we did it once a month, we can't live off that, something's wrong with us. It wasn't long until we started having problems with the feds. That we're doing a lot of dumb things. Their older brother, Armando, was the only person they could rely on, and he was now in prison. So, with no one else to turn to, they decided to take a quick trip down to Mexico to call off with the feds and get some much needed fatherly advice. I still remember going to being in Mexico and my father sitting us down and he pointed out our, our mistakes. You're already on the run? He said, listen, you guys got to figure out what you guys want. You're here. Like, where are you going to live? Mm-hmm. Where's your car at? You didn't think about none of that. You're just here. You spent your money on, on what he would call dumb things and, and bullshit. We talked about the future, like our, our business, you know, our, our plans about the what ifs, you know, how we can make it better, like what we could actually do. And he would tell us, I want to let you know something. Prison's hard. Prison is hard. And you guys don't want to go to prison. But he's right. I don't want to go to prison. I don't. And I think it was a wake up call. Like, okay, we're only going to start focusing on, on what we're going to do and what we're doing wrong. And me and my brother just started like saying, okay, let's focus and let's concentrate on being successful. And it helped that when we got back, the feds were still on us. Let's be honest. It wasn't about let's be successful. Let's not get caught. The main goal was like, don't get caught. The twins returned from their three-month Mexican sabbatical, armed with their father's expert advice and set about building their business in Chicago. What's funny, we never said, let's just stop. Like by that time, the greed was so set in that you're like, there's too much money to be made. Our customers need drugs. And we began to invest like a lot of the profits we're making and back into the business. If, like me, you're wondering where two 17-year-olds learned the entrepreneurial skills to start their own business... Well, it turns out they learn it from the same place many kids do. Hey, hi, welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order? Yeah, that's right. In amongst the Happy Meals and the Chicken Nuggets, that's where Pete and Jay refined their trade. I go to McDonald's, I apply for the job, they give me the job. I love the job. In the sense of responsibility a little bit, I seen that there was nothing but 15 and 16-year-old kids working at McDonald's. And I'm thinking, like, man, they're making McDonald's with millions and millions of dollars. Even the manager's kind of young, so... Like, wow. And some of the workers at that time didn't know English, probably didn't know how to read, they didn't know how to write, but guess what? They made that restaurant be one of the so, most successful yeah. restaurants in the city. Why did it be created this system where you can't mess it up? Like... You can't mess it up, man. You can learn how to run a McDonald's in a day. Like, you know, and I, I took advantage of the opportunity. And that's what I was seeing. Like, I was learning the business part at McDonald's. Like, it wasn't just like, I'm learning to do fries. I'm learning the grill. I washed the dishes. I did the drive through I did the front. When we were working there, I was like, man. Lunchtime was packed. There's a black, like they're making money, like value. We're learning that value. And I think that helps as well, because later on in my career, like I had to do the same thing. You know, I'm 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 pushing hundreds of kilos at a time. You know, predicting, predicting what we're gonna need. The first of the month come around, I, I'm gonna need a lot. In the middle of the month, I'm gonna have another wave. So I'm making these these arrangements for my trucks to be ready to go within a couple of days. 
of the first of the month, I'm picking up millions and millions of dollars. But why? Let me explain why. Because first of the month, it was government checks coming in or people get paid. Just like the bill. First and 15. Like, first and 15. Like, we're, those are our money making times. Those are the times that you want to have the drugs available and the streets need them. I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, I want to own a McDonald's one day. Not just thinking that they're making a lot of money for, you know, people who own it, but just for the structure of it. Like, business concept, the way they did things was so, like, I even at that age, before I read any books on business, it was real simple to me. Like, this is perfect. I think it was also the, the team environment, the work and stuff, the collective. I think that people always say that they want to be a part of something. And, like, that's why they join gangs and stuff. I think that commitment when you bring people together and you're doing something something good, it doesn't have to be positive, but like working at McDonald's, a group of people, like I could see myself being a team leader and working, like that's what I look for, like just to be involved. I think me and my brother took that concept and how to treat our workers, you know, and what we could do for them to make them feel more comfortable, more safe. You know, we're going to take that and continue to grow it and 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 learn from that. For me, the, those tedious little details, like that McDonald's win the extra mile to make, a, you know, the ketchup pump and the mustard pump to release the exact amount of mustard, the exact amount of ketchup needed for the burger to taste the same every time. Like, you know what you're going to get. That's why people go to McDonald's, not because it's great burgers, because you know what you're going to get. I remember they said, well, wash your hands, you know, every 15 minutes. And I went to wash my hands and they have a system for that. And they actually have to tell people how to wash their hands. Here's a reminder, there's signs everywhere. Just in case. I look, this is what I wanted to do. Later on, I remember Tell them, look, this is going to be our system. Because the last thing you want to do is have kilos missing. Working at McDonald's thinking like, even at the beginning stage, like, man, you drop something, throw that shit out. It didn't cost you nothing. Man, give the customer what they want. It ain't costing you nothing. The one time we were both working and um, one of the older like Mexican guys that was working there, he was from Mexico, didn't know English. We went and got a block of cheese and he was walking back with it and the cheese fell on the floor. The floors are greasy, they're dirty. Now he picked up the block of cheese, now it looks like pepper jack cheese. And he was about to put it back on the cheese container thing. And my brother like, what the fuck are you doing? And then we look at each other, we're like, it's not your fucking cheese. There's a thousand blocks of cheese in the freezer. Trust me, McDonald's not going to care. They're going to care more that you give somebody some cheese with hair on it. But it's just the mentality that you would think is common sense. We had that problem with even some of our people. Well, they'd be like, no, no, I'm not going to leave that there. We'd be like, it's not yours. Don't worry about what's going to be laws. Worry about yourself. And we learned, you know, in the street, you're going to hear a lot of people say they got shot because they wouldn't give up their, their chain. And me and my brother always looked at it like, if you get me in that position, you won. It's yours. Tomorrow, I'll go buy another one. Learn to take a loss. When we worked it, like, I think it, it brought Jane and I a lot of insight and I got good feelings to like be moved around and do all the My things. brother got a little sense of power too that he wanted to abuse right away. I'm in charge of sending people to do things and he's not happy that he has to go clean up the parking lot. And it's Friday night and there's bumper to bumper traffic on 26 feet, everyone's cruising around. And he's like, bro, so you like, so, really gonna send so, me out there? Yes. My brother could have 
chose any one of the other 12 workers there. And he would decide to choose me every Friday or Saturday night I work or Sunday, which was happened to be the biggest, busiest time for her little village. And he would choose me no matter what. For some reason, he thought he was teaching me a lesson. To me, I was just like, oh, you just wanted to rub it in. Why would your son be like that? No, I'm saying, <laughs> like, he doesn't understand, like, like, what he could have like said, like, everybody, uh, every other manager or, or, or every other person would be like, you know, uh, today's your turn, Charlie. Tomorrow, Joe. No, I did have other employees. I didn't want to be like, oh, no. you're, you're just sending me because your so brother. Why did you then? You're just sending me because your brother. At the same time, I wanted my brother to feel okay that he works at McDonald's. You work, you're good, bro. Like, so what? He wanted to make sure that I felt comfortable working with that. Like, <laughs> do me a favor. <laughs> Uh, at the end, let's go back. Right now, we're seeing McDonald's as a great opportunity. So everyone out there who's working at McDonald's, just that's great for sure. But you know what? You could want more. You could want more. You don't have to be like, oh, my God, I love cleaning up the whole parking lot with a broom. Hey, you could touch this, touch this. Yeah. This is going to be like the template of what our no, like, I'm saying that. Okay, can I ask you, what's the big deal? Go what was the, the parking lot. Here's your go. What, hey, what was the big deal? I went, they send me every day. I went every day. So it's funny how we would go through these motions. Anyways, it was a great experience for the both of us, I think. The neighborhood McDonald's in Little Village, Chicago, was an old haunt for the Flores family. It was the very spot where their father made the deal that got him arrested and where the twins made their first ever deal that got their business started. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top 
of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started implementing little things that we could do. First of all, we can't have drugs where we're living. So we need somewhere to put them away, which is called stash them. Or, so we needed like a, a stash, a place to stash them. So we started off with garages, empty garages in regular neighborhoods. And we started like just, we would get a bunch of them though, three, four of them. We started like saying, okay, we're going to invest in, in vehicles with stash compartments. Instead of buying one or two, we said, okay, let's buy three or four. After you started making the money, it, it wasn't about the money anymore. It was about, this is what we do. For me and my brother, I, I think there was times where we didn't know how much money we had. We just know we had a lot of money. Our friend, Gus, he takes us to the, to the shop and says, look, buy these money machines. And I'm like, do I really need it? He's like, do you want to do things right or do you want to keep doing things the way you're doing? I remember when I was like, okay, and he pulled two money machines out and it was like, yeah, like $6,000. I was like, $6,000 for these two money machines? Like, I, I can count it by hand. Later on, I was like, that was one of the best decisions I ever made. It brought our, our business to a different level where you could package your money and send it like the way they do it. Whether it was a million dollars or 50 million dollars, and then it saves time, you know, man, it saves time. And I remember the machines, I tell you, it was my favorite machine, like I looked for it everywhere. It was like a Toyocom NC50. If you didn't have that machine, like, oh, let me go somewhere else. With the business we were doing, we burned through a lot of machines. Mm. It was a constant, we added it as a, as a cost that every month we were gonna buy Four machines. Every month we were spending 15, 20 grand on new money. What, what was so sad when they were like, oh, we don't make them no more, we only refurbish them. I'm like, what? When that kind of money starts rolling in, the streets start talking, especially in a place like Little Village in the 90s, where gang violence was so dominant that mothers were too afraid to let their kids have parties, ride their bikes in front of their homes, or even take the bus. It wasn't long before Pete had a gun put to his head in a home invasion. And the extra attention certainly didn't help them with the feds. We started noticing that they would be there from early morning to mid-afternoon, and we felt like, we're going to have more patience than them. We started making that our schedule. Get up 5, 6 in the afternoon, it's the streets go make sure we were not being followed. We'll park our regular cars with our phone, take the battery off our phones, park the cars, and go jump in our other car and go to work where we called it. We could be out delivering drugs, collecting money, counting money all through the night, early morning hours. Once we knew it was like five, six in the morning, okay, it was time for us to go back home and go to sleep and let them sit there all day. They watched you all day. Yeah, and it helped us save money because we were not out spending money. It helps in a lot of ways. Like, we could do this. If we do things right, we could beat them. We also started to find out that we were the people that were they were interested in. So we could get other people to do our business for us. Then we could be selling drugs while we were sitting at home. So not long after that, we acquired our first worker who was a really close friend of us growing up. And in a way, we started training them to a business that almost came natural to us. Peter, like, it's not like we were, we ever did this before. Like, yeah, we're just trying to come and just do what I do. We started noticing that he would make dumb decisions. It's like, yo, what are you doing? Like, 
And that kind of was taught us that what we knew, we couldn't expect someone else to understand or know. If it was that he parked the car in the garage the wrong way because, you know, we couldn't get to the stash, whatever the case is, I'd be like, now you got to take the car back out. Like those little things, details. I think naturally, without even noticing, we were kind of, we started becoming leaders, right? He wouldn't question us. We're going to start kind of implementing a system that we didn't know at that time was from what we learned, you know, working at McDonald's. I think the biggest thing to get someone's respect like that was that they seen us, like I'd get in the car and put, you know, 45, 50, 60 kilos in the backseat and deliver them myself. Like I didn't have a problem doing that and go pick up the money and do the stuff that I was asking someone else to do for me, you know? And if there was a situation where I didn't feel comfortable doing it. I wouldn't have someone else doing it. That's plain and simple. Ne I would never do that. And at the end of the day, I never went to bed or went to a party or did anything until I knew that everybody was home safe. I think people can't even understand how, how involved we were in our day-to-day -day business. Like you weren't talking to no one but me. And I'm going to, you know, negotiate a price. We're going to negotiate the quantity. And then they could call us and be like, all right, listen, send me 50 kilos. And I'll make sure like the business part's taken care of. Then we could call our, our workers and be like, listen, you know, go to the stash house and um, get 50 kilos. Call me when you're at the house. Before you leave, confirm the count. Before you get to the house, drive around, make sure there are no funny cars in the neighborhood. As soon as you walk in the house, before you even go to the kilos, check the front door, check the mailbox. Like the last thing you want is bills piling up in front. We found out that it wasn't good that we were using our phone, like our regular phone. And if people could get a hold of you there and you're calling everyone, and we started realizing that the feds would just listen in and wait. Started saying, well, okay, we're gonna buy these phones. And this is just for me and you to talk to, you know, they're not registered, they're prepaid. If no one knows that we have these phones and we just call this phone to that phone number, then we could talk about whatever we want. So we kind of call it like a clone the phone. Like, so we had our house phone, which was a phone that was registered to our, our name that we use, you know, for our family. And then everybody else, got one of these clone phones where, like, I'm going to talk to you, don't call nobody from this phone. And at that time, the, hard, the phones are hard to get. It was like, don't mess up this phone, man. Don't call no one. And I still remember, like, if someone jumps in the car and uses your phone or something, let me know. Let's throw them away. Like, don't risk so much or laziness. And trust me, like, at the end, we're spending $10,000 on minutes a week. And this you is early, you know, when cell phones were still expensive, right? Pete and Jay soon worked out that to be successful, they had to make sure they were ahead of the demand and always have a supply of drugs available. This became instrumental to their success. In fact, when the tragedy of 9-11 happened and America's borders were immediately tightened, the brothers were the only ones with a local drug supply actually in the US. Their business dominated. So it was a scaling part. You know, you scaled, you scaled, and we also found out that having one source of supply wasn't good. We were, we were depending on one person, so we had to start branching out, looking around, and the same way we were looking for customers, and we were always looking for a source of supply. And Before that, I think the essential was to lay down the foundation of our operation was to have the stash houses. Because if you can't keep the work safe, the cocaine, the drugs safe, and the money safe, you're kind of like, you're, you're starting out wrong. How many stash houses do you think? So we started off point? like with our first one, it was a sticker shock. We were like, no, but we started off with garages. Yeah, garages. And it was easy yes, because we'll go up for people who are near you. You know, hey, I need your garage. I'm going to pay you $5,000 a month. And we didn't like the in and out in these like regular neighborhoods. They increased traffic, like people getting nosy. And then 
in those neighborhoods that the cops pull you over because you're suspicious, they pull you out the car and they search your car. They don't ask you. Can I see your license and registration? That doesn't happen. They say, get the fuck out the car right now. I need a uh, uh, license plate number check, please. And you're like, oh, here's my license, and they'll slap you. Live. So we never took no drugs to Little Village. You know, we'd buy brand new cars and we'd equip them. We could go to the car lot and we would act like we were shopping for, for clothes. I'd be like, give me that car, that one, and that one, and that one. As soon as our vehicles started getting a little old or something funny, we'd give those to our customers and we'd take the new ones. And we try to have a consistent car, like a consistent car, consistent color yeah. that wouldn't look suspicious going, you know, you have a stash house and you don't want 10 different cars coming in there or a shiny car where it's like, hey, that's, why so many cars going in there? No, we want it to be consistent because you want the most common cars. Keeping the business off the police radar also meant operating where the police weren't, like the fancier parts of town. So along with the cars came nice houses. Houses that, for all intents and purposes, looked like someone lived there, furniture and all, but the only thing actually living there, piles and piles of drugs. We're fortunate enough to, to have a, a woman introduced to us by one of our sources. Her name was Ashley. She was deep into like this fraud life. So she would go to these renters in high-end, you know, neighborhoods and be like, um, you know, human resources for Allstate. We're bringing a bunch of employees, many housing. Not only would she do that, she would go furnish the house, like perfectly. And she would leave pots and pans in the house, like if you just walked out. A wine bottle on the table, dishware, clothes in the thing, you know, laundry. I'm like, I hope that's not her dirty laundry, but... You know, but in a way we can, we helped her train her to what we yeah, needed. Cool. And we just paid her very well. And it, it was perfect to feel like that she was so trustworthy. She becomes like intimate, like we become really good friends and she's dependable. Me and my brother be like, I could leave drugs there and sleep good at night and not worry about it. So we like, our thing was be like, make sure the neighborhood is good. We'd be like, we want a tax garage, two-car garage, you know, like in a nice area. And, and I'm saying that because the rent would be like $5,000 a month. You know, they do. They expect a two-year lease or whatever. So over $120,000, and plus her expenses and the furniture. So me and Marilla would actually talk about a property, for instance, if we had it for a while. But that house probably made us $5 million. Oh, that was worth it. It kept us safe. If they, they ever were to raid the house, we drop it. We just walk away. Did that never happen? A lot. Yeah. Did it? Yeah, it happened. And they could never trace anything back to you? Ashley, she just became part of the team. She was a character because she was a bipolar. We, yeah, we had to worry about people's mental health. Like, we had to take care of them, like doctors. And, and that's just someone who gets us a house. And we have the people who get us the cars and the people who do the compartments, the people who work for us. I mean, you go down the list. The people who get us the phones. It was the whole chain of being like logistical and, and being a manager, right? So I would say like I would have been a beast at Amazon. Well, because people don't understand. In order for me to sell those 2,000 keys, we had to have at least 4,000 keys in the process. Meaning, in the pipeline. In the pipeline. I have to actually check the quality of the work myself. We don't trust no one. I'm checking the work. I'm making the deals. We have to evaluate the price between when am I going to receive these keys, wherever where they're going, and what's the price right now? How we're looking. Because you make a deal, the price fluctuates. And, it, and the prices go down? Once you shake your hand, you shake the hand, you owe. It's a whole... Yeah, you got a, you, you, you got, you know, 5,000 kilos sitting uh -huh. in Mexico. You got know, 1,000 kilos in California. In the border, you know, across the border. You got, you know, four or 500 kilos in transportation. There's a process. You got to bring the money back. The truck weighs a certain way. You had to think, okay. So we had 350 kilos in there. And we calculated that every bill weighs around a grand. Uh -huh. 
So you're like, okay, I could fit the same amount of money. Money. So I would weigh, I would package the money on a thousand bills, uh-huh. which is a kilo. You literally have a, a load of money is weighing two tons. Right. To send back. To send back. So you get on the scale and the truck gets on the scale. It's supposed to weigh something. And it's over? You have a problem. If you don't think about that, then you're not doing right. So we have to calculate what they're weighing. You know, what's the weight they're going to give you? Right. Because money weighs a lot right. when it's involved. Right, yeah. When they're doing those movies, like the heist movies. Yeah. And they're running out the yeah. bank. That's bullshit. Yeah. That's yeah. bullshit. Yeah. So, well, I mean, only people that know would know, right? Yeah. So we're sending back like 900 pounds of money. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the semi truck be like, this is good. Like they have a good route. It's a good routine, good driver, good everything. How are we packing it in? We're going to send whatever money we could. Right. <laughs> 40, 50, 80 million dollars, whatever we could. That was the money we had to pay back to the cartel. It was our money. So, so when right. you say sending it back? Back to Mexico. The same smuggling rules that you take to the kilos to get to the... Backwards. Back, it's backwards. And it's another risk. Getting it back. Getting it back. And you got to make sure it gets to... So you got to get the troops out. Yeah. And then you got to get the money. Yeah, so in, in, in yeah. the foreign countries, the only thing that you could buy drugs with is for cash. I tell them, right? I said, you can't go there with a credit card. Right. That's it here. You know? Yeah. That's a whole process on its own, and it's one of the harder parts of uh, the business, believe it or not, like transporting boxes. I, I do believe that sometimes with everything that we know, we'd make great consultants for the government for the right percentage. Everything that they're doing is not working. Like any good delivery business, the more demand, the more stock you need. But, of course, you need somewhere to keep all that stock. For Jay and Pete, they eventually had more stash houses than they could keep track of. So, they began naming them after the local points of interest they were near. As far as anyone else knew, Pete and Jay's workers just really enjoyed stopping by 7-Eleven, the dry cleaners, or the sandwich shop, Quiznos. But there was one other place they loved to visit. We love that West Loop area a little bit in downtown in Chicago and right by Oprah's Winfrey Studio. And we would meet people there sometimes and we'd be like, meet me by the rich bitch. All right, I'll meet you by the rich bitch. And that was like our common theme, like the rich bitch. He and I'm making an Oprah for sure. And what's funny is that we Oprah would, might have you won that because you said that. <laughs> no, I'm saying, no, I'm not, I'm saying like, I don't mean no disrespect. Her studio was right there, and we would actually play ball across the street at Hoops the Gym that was right in front on Washington Street. We would hang out there. Downtown that was, like, safe at the time and quiet, and we could eat there, shop there, and live there, and it felt like home. Like I mean, you know? that was our playground, just, you know, like, we implemented these little things. Like, for instance, all workers always had collared shirts, this blue one, you know? Downtown workers, right? Put on your shirt. You're driving, seatbelt on. Easy, just follow the rules, things that we're not going to stick out. We could still dress however we wanted, but have our shirt just in case we had to do something. Those were just, those little things we implemented, be able to, like, maneuver in the streets, like, comfortably. And how old were you at this point? 20. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Move over, Jeff Bezos. The Flores twins had a complex shipping supply chain moving drugs across America by the time they were just 20 years old, not to mention a small workforce and even a strictly enforced dress code. I remember when I met Jay, he actually shook my hand and I'm like, that's weird. (laughs) You know, everybody's not that polite, and he was just well-mannered. There's a couple more important characters I'd like to introduce you to who are pivotal to the twin story. Meet Val. Val had a reputation in the local scene back then. Think, say, 90s Kim Kardashian. She was the OG, known for her extensive use of plastic surgery and her stylish fashion choices. But pink was her go-to colour, so she became known as Barbie because she looked so much like the doll. Val and Jay got together and eventually married. He reminded me of my dad. My dad is a Chicago police officer, and he raised me and my sibling to the best that he could. While Val may have been the child of a police officer, her background is not all that different to Jay's. I felt like at the time I was around the wrong crowd and I felt like I kind of got addicted to being with a bad boy because they were mysterious. I felt like I was very shy, you know, being a kid when I was growing up. 
I just was in a situation where there was people around me and, you know, they were bringing drugs from California to Chicago. And I started off by being a mule. And a mule is somebody that would take a trip, whether it's to LA or whether it's to Mexico and bring drugs back to Chicago. And I started that at a very young age, 18 years old. My mom raised me to be very strong. And I felt like there's nothing that a man can do that I couldn't do better. I felt like I don't need to depend on anyone. I could do it myself. I just started getting addicted to this lifestyle and I just continued to take these trips and I continued to risk my life. I would drive from Mexico to Chicago without stopping. I wasn't gonna stop. I was fearless. I come from a family of law enforcement. Every time that I would get stopped, I was like just name dropping and everybody knew who my family was. I felt like invincible and I felt like I was never gonna get caught. I was only gonna allow my parents you know, to see what I wanted them to see. I would tell them what they wanted to hear because I didn't want them to worry about me. So as I was taking all these trips to Mexico, I always had a reason for not being there. And it's like, I never wanted them to worry. So it's like, I almost lived this double life without them knowing. They got caught in Mexico. The car was in my name. Another worker was supposed to bring it up. They kind of got scared and didn't want to drive it. So I immediately jumped in like, I'll just take it myself. I jumped in the car, I drove it up to the border and there's these border stops. They'll pull you over and they have these checkpoints. They'll lift your car up on a lift and they'll start checking, you know, the gas tanks. They dropped the gas tank and they found the drugs. The guy that I was with, he was scared. And I was like, listen, the car's already in my name. It's okay. You're gonna go home. Like, I'm just gonna take the weight because there's no point of both of us going to prison. They put me in front of a judge in less than 72 hours and they sentenced me to 10 years. next on Surviving El Chapo, the twins who brought down a drug lord. They would give me one phone call a month to call my family. And I think that was the hardest thing, just telling my family that I was in prison in Mexico. I think that was my biggest fear more than being there. I know that they cried so much. My sister told me she slept on the tile floor because she wanted to know what it felt like to be where I was at. Surviving El Chapo, the twins who brought down a drug lord, is hosted by Curtis 50 Cent Jackson and me, Charlie Webster. Our producers are myself alongside Jackson McLennan. Research and editorial support is from Casey Hertz. Edit and sound design by Nico Palella. Original score by Ryan Sorensen and additional music by Nico Palella. Executive produced by Curtis 50 Cent Jackson and myself, Charlie Webster. If you'd like to know more about this story, head over to lionsgatesound.com. Curtis 50 Cent Jackson presents a Lionsgate Sound and G-Unit audio production exclusively for iHeart Podcasts. girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 